Amen. Well, I invite you to take your copy of Scripture this morning and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28. And if you're using one of the black Bibles that's provided for you there in the chair, you'll find one in one of the chairs around you, uh, you'll find our passage on page 835, 835. Matthew chapter 28, and I'll begin reading for us in verse 1. And read through to verse 10. This is God's Word. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you shall see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go. And tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Amen. This is God's Word. Well, this year in preparation for Easter, we have been working through Matthew's account of the final week of Jesus' life before His resurrection. And of course, many of you are familiar with these events But Matthew seems to record these events in a way that always includes a twist or a turn, something that we wouldn't expect. So for example, last Sunday we considered Palm Sunday when Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem. And we might assume that as Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem, that he would enter in, king, in a kingly way, in a triumphant way. And in one sense, he does. But Matthew also records that when Jesus rides into the city, he rides in humble and meek. He rides in on a colt, on a donkey. He is a king who is humble and who's come to die for his people. Then Friday night we gathered together and we remembered the crucifixion of Jesus, the day that he died. And we would assume that as Matthew records that event, that Jesus being crucified and dying on the cross, that Matthew might choose to focus on the physical sufferings of Jesus, especially given the fact that crucifixion was such a horrendous and physically horrible event. But rather... Matthew says almost nothing about Jesus' physical sufferings and rather chooses to focus on the relational sufferings that Jesus experienced at the cross. That he was mocked, that he was insulted, that he was rejected by all. 
And then Matthew shows us how even the glory, how the glory of Jesus is even revealed in the mockery and insults of sinners. And now we come to the resurrection. The day in which Jesus is raised from the dead, in which Jesus conquers sin and death and hell. And we might assume that the the emotional response to this event would be excitement, would be thrill. And in one sense it is. that That is an appropriate response to the resurrection of Jesus. But it's interesting That's not the response that Matthew chooses to emphasize in his account of the resurrection. Rather, Matthew stresses that the proper response to the resurrection is fear. Either fear of judgment or fear in worship. And so I want us to consider these two points this morning. The proper response to the resurrection is either fear of judgment or fear in worship. So first of all, fear of judgment. Look there in chapter 28, verses 1 to 4. Matthew records, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. So here we see that two women who were followers of Jesus arrive at the tomb in the morning. And based on Mark's account, so another gospel account, we learn that the women were coming to the tomb to complete the burial preparations for Jesus. And in coming to the tomb, they were hoping that someone would help them to remove the stone from the tomb so that they would have access to Jesus' body and be able to complete the burial ceremony. But then in a moment there, as they arrive to the tomb, there is an earthquake. And an angel descends... And Matthew records that there's a dazzling light. And we notice here that Matthew's just grasping for words to describe what this angel was like. He says that his appearance was like lightning and his clothing was white as snow. He was radiant. He was brilliant with light. And then Matthew says that the angel removed the stone. And now notice the response of the guards in verse 4. For fear of him, that is the angel, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Now, of course, the guards in this story represent the Roman Empire. And Rome, in this, on this occasion, was seeking to actively suppress the Jesus movement with their military might and strength. They had heard that Jesus had spoken of resurrection and they were going to make sure with their military might and power with these soldiers who were stationed there that that would never happen. And then you have these poor soldiers. The text doesn't tell us this, but but I assume they were just kind of passively going along for the ride. 
I assume they didn't know a whole lot about this Jesus movement, but they had been given this assignment to guard the tomb of a Jewish carpenter. And we could imagine that they would say to themselves, they would think to themselves, of course I'll do this. This sounds like a pretty easy assignment. Guard the tomb of a Jewish carpenter? I just hope I don't get bored. And an angel of the Lord shows up And these strong soldiers who represent the mighty power of Rome fall out like dead men. They have been given charge to protect and guard the tomb of Jesus. But when God shows up, they know in a moment that they are in over their heads. The resurrection event completely overwhelms them. And Matthew records they become like dead men. We could say they were genuinely scared to death. And there's a warning here for us. That the resurrection of Jesus is good news, but it is not good news for everyone. For all who think that they will, in their strength, actively oppose Jesus or hold him down, they should be afraid. They should be very afraid. Like those Muslim extremists who are seeking to suppress the spread of the gospel in Chad that we prayed for this morning. They should be afraid. Very afraid. But not only that, for those who passively take Jesus for granted or assume that Jesus is weak or inconsequential, they too should be afraid. Very afraid. Like the soldiers who assumed easy assignment, guard the tomb of a a Jewish carpenter. Or like so many today who happily wave the banner of Christianity and of Jesus when it's culturally expected. But assume that he is utterly irrelevant in the daily details of life. For all who assume that Jesus is irrelevant or inconsequential, they should be afraid. Very afraid. Because one day all opposition towards Jesus and all apathy towards Jesus will die in His presence. And the resurrected Lord, the resurrected Lord will pulsate with life and energy and exuberance and joy and beauty for all eternity. My friends, if you are here this morning and you are actively opposing Jesus or passively assuming that he is weak or inconsequential, you should be afraid. The second response, though, proper response to the resurrection of Jesus is not only fear of judgment, but fear in worship. Fear in worship. And we see this in verses 5 to 10. Look there and we read these words. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. 
For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So here we see at verse 5 that the focus of the passage turns. It turns from the guards in verses 1 to 4 to the women in verses 5 to 10. And first, the angel has a message for the women. And then we see that Jesus has a message for the women. But the interesting thing is that if you look at both of these messages, the message that the angel had for the women and then the message that Jesus had for the women, and you put those two messages side by side, they're almost exactly the same. And if we were to summarize that message, I would, I would summarize it this way. Comfort, conviction, and commission. This is the message that the angel and Jesus have for the women. It's a message of comfort, of conviction, and commission. Notice in verse 5, it's a message of comfort. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. Now this is interesting because right here in our passage, there's a break in the narrative. So so the verse just prior to this, in verse 4, we see that the guards see the angel and they're overwhelmed with his glory and with his might, and they fall out. But the angel then does not say anything to the guards. I mean, you might think, hey, the guards need some assistance here, right? Like, like maybe, maybe the angel would have something to say to them. The, guard, the angel just lets the guards pass out. And then in verse 5, the angel chooses not to speak to the guards, but to speak to the women. And the message that the angel has for the women is very different. The message for the women in verse 5 is, do not be afraid. And then if you skip down to verse 10, Jesus offers the same assurance to the women. Verse 10, first thing Jesus says to them, do not be afraid. It's kind of funny that that both the angel and Jesus have to lead with this. It's almost like they're saying as as they encounter these women and they behold their glory and their might, it's almost like they're saying, don't fall out on me like the mighty Roman soldiers did. And notice what the angel says next in verse 5. Do not be afraid, here it is, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Now, the women probably didn't fully understand all of this at that time. But this is actually the reason why they don't have to be afraid. Because Jesus died and he was crucified for their sins in their place. Jesus died so that they would not have to. Jesus came back to life so that he might share his life with them. And here's the promise of the gospel for all of us this morning. If we trust in Jesus' death as the payment for our sins, and we trust in his resurrection for our life, then we do not have to be afraid. 
Jesus says to us this morning, I died and I rose again so that you can trade your fear and anxiety for peace and comfort. Jesus says, I'm for you. I am with you. You do not have to be afraid. And if you entrust yourself to me, then my glory will not be your terror, but my glory will be your comfort and joy forever and ever. The first message that that the angel and Jesus have for the women is a message of comfort. Do not be afraid. The second, though, part of this message is a message of conviction. Look there in verse 6 and 7, and the angel speaks these words. Verse 5, he says, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Verse 6, here it is. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So one of the things we see here as well is that the angel and Jesus are eager to authenticate Jesus' resurrection so that whatever doubts that the women might have, those doubts might give way to confidence and conviction that Jesus has, in fact, been raised from the dead. Notice in verse 7, the angel says to the women that the disciples will see Jesus in Galilee. In verse 9, Jesus appears to the women, and then Jesus relays the same message in verse 10. Jesus assures the women that the disciples will see him in Galilee. So right here in these verses, we have eyewitness accounts of the resurrected Jesus. The women see him, and the women are told that the disciples will see him, and later on in the chapter, we see that that comes to pass as the disciples encounter the living Christ. So we have these eyewitness accounts, but then we also notice that the angel is especially eager to offer the women evidence that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Notice there in verse 6, the angel says to the women, He is not here For he is risen as he said. See what the angel is saying here? The angel is saying, listen, this is just as Jesus had told you. When you were were with Jesus, when he was alive, he told you over and over again that he would die and that he would be raised. It's all playing out just like Jesus said it would. And then he says, come, see the place where he lay. Now that's interesting. Here's this angel, full of might and glory. You would assume that they should just take him at his word, right? But the angel says, listen, you don't even have to take my word for it. Come over here, let me show you. Look in the tomb yourself. He is no longer here. And Matthew emphasizes this point because in the latter part of verse 27, if you look back there in the latter part of verse 27... In verse 40, or chapter 27, verse 47, you will see that these same two women were present when Jesus' body was prepared for burial, laid in the tomb, and Matthew records that the women saw where he was laid. 
So they saw where he was laid. They saw him laid in the tomb. And now Matthew records just a few verses later, they saw the tomb empty. The angel wants them to see with their own eyes that he is no longer there. Now I know that in a crowd this size, there might be some here this morning that would say, well, yeah, I see that in the passage. But of course, these people were from the first century, and they were especially gullible. I mean, for crying out loud, they'd believe anything. But in fact, that's not the case. In fact, it runs contrary to the evidence. What we see actually in the gospel accounts is that these first century people and even the first believers in Jesus were not eager to accept this incredible claim that Jesus had been raised from the dead. In fact, it was just the opposite. They were incredibly skeptical and unbelieving just like us. Because in the first century, they knew something that we know now. Dead people don't just get up from the dead. They knew that. They understood that. And so here we see that an angel authenticates Jesus' resurrection by his glorious appearance. And Jesus appears to the women and he appears to the disciples. And we know from other accounts that he appears to many others. And just like today, we see that although all this happens, immediately there are those who seek to suppress the evidence and devise alternative theories. In fact, in the very next verses, in verses 11 through 15, the guards come back and they report what happens. And the religious leaders get word of this. And did the religious leaders then accept the testimony of the guards and did they worship and follow Jesus? No. This event was far too threatening to their own autonomy, independence, power, pride. Instead, in verses 11 through 15, we read that the religious leaders, when they hear this evidence, they pay off the soldiers and they say, listen, if anybody asks you about this event, you tell them that Jesus' disciples stole the body. But that's, that's, not, that's not the most striking thing that we see here in these verses, though. What we see a little further down is that it's not just those who actively oppose Jesus who lack faith to believe in his resurrection. In verse 16, we see that the word that the angel gave to the women that Jesus would appear to the disciples in Galilee is fulfilled. And Jesus appears to the 11 disciples. Look there in verse 11. Um, No, I'm sorry, verse 16. Look at verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee. As they were told, right? They're thinking to themselves, okay, this is at least worth checking out. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. Notice this in verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. Here it is. But some doubted. That's amazing, isn't it? Here you have Jesus raised from the dead. He's predicted it over and over and over again to the 11 disciples. I'm going to die, then I'll be raised from the dead. I'm going to die, then I'll be raised from the dead. I'm going to die, then I'll be raised from the dead. An angel appears 
The tomb is empty. These women who they know come back with the testimony that he has been raised. They see him physically before them. And yet they doubt. Could this really be true? They are not much different than us. I wonder this morning, do you have doubts? We all have doubts at times. The disciples did. And Jesus says to us this morning, come and see. Look at the evidence. It's all there. All is there for you to credibly believe that I was, in fact, raised from the dead. Check it out. Investigate it for yourself. And believe in me. Trust in me. Jesus wants your doubts to give way to confidence and conviction. You know, we're all living by faith in something. Every single one of us this morning is living by faith in something. The question is, what is worthy of your faith? What's worthy of your confidence? What's worthy of you banking your life on it? Jesus says, I am the resurrected Lord, and I am worthy of your confidence and your faith. Before we move on from conviction, though, I want to show you this as well. This is, it's beautiful. Not only is Jesus and the angel eager to authenticate Jesus' resurrection so that there is confidence and conviction in the women that he has been raised from the dead and in the disciples, but we also see here that conviction then leads to worship. It's evident both in the women's interaction with the angel and in Jesus's, I'm sorry, yes, with the women's interaction with the angel and the women's interaction with Jesus. So after the angel announces Jesus's resurrection, and after the angel shows the women the empty tomb, they are overcome with emotion. And think about this. I mean, consider what's just happened in their lives. The women come to the tomb and they are looking for a dead Jesus and living guards. And yet when they arrive, they find guards who are like dead men and a living Jesus. Their worlds have just been turned upside down. And in verse 8 we read, and this is, this is the result of their new conviction and confidence that Jesus has in fact been raised from the dead. Verse 8 we read, So, as a result, they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and with great joy. That's worship. And then, on their way to share this good news with the disciples, they've been told, okay, now I want you to go and I want you to tell the disciples what you've seen. On their way to share this good news with the disciples, Jesus meets them and greets them. Jesus is intending again, not only through the angel, but by appearing to them to strengthen their conviction that he has been raised from the dead. And notice the response in verse 9. 
And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And here it is. And they came up and took hold of his feet. They touched him. He's physical. This is not just a spirit. This is not a phantom or a vision. They touched him. He's physical. And they worshipped him. So, the proper response to the resurrection is fear, and either fear of judgment or fear in worship. But what I want you to notice from our text is that those are two different kinds of fear. One is a fear of terror, and the other is a fear of awe and wonder. The guards are afraid and rightfully so. The women fear. Afraid is terror. Fear is worship. And so the question this morning for all of us is, do you fear Jesus? You should. Every single one of us should fear Jesus. But do you fear Him and that you are afraid? Or do you fear him in awe and wonder and worship? Notice as well that this fear of the resurrected Jesus is the source of their joy. Do you see that in the text? Verse 8, so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear. There's the awe, there's the wonder, and great joy. So the fear of Jesus and joy in Jesus are not incompatible with one another. In fact, the fear of Jesus results in joy in Jesus. Given that that's the case, I wonder if there are some here this morning and you've always thought to yourself, you know, if my life were just more chill, then I'd know real joy. If my life was just filled with more vacations and more hobbies and more sports and more entertainment and more amusement, then I would really know joy. And there's nothing inherently wrong with those things. Those things can be good in and of themselves. But oh my friends, how many people... I don't doubt that there are some here this morning and you are working your fingers to the bone to achieve, to get at that place where your life can just be filled with amusements and then you think, oh, that will be joy. But let me ask you this question. What if our greatest opportunity for joy doesn't come by being pacified with more amusements but by being stunned with glory? There are some here this morning, and maybe you've thought to yourself that, you know, religion is useful. But the key to finding joy and satisfaction in religion is to not take it too seriously. Now, Jesus is good in doses. Not too little, but not too much. Let me ask you this question. What if the secret to experiencing joy in Jesus is not to take Jesus lightly, but to be awed and rattled to your core with his resurrection glory and power? To be awed and rattled to your core with a glory that transcends us, that is beyond us, 
that we can't fully comprehend and for which we were created. Jesus and the angel are eager to persuade the women of the conviction that he has been raised from the dead so that they would be in awe of him. They would fear him. They would stand in wonder of his glory and as a result know a deep and abiding joy. The fear of Jesus results in joy in Jesus. That's why we're happy when we sing and we're overwhelmed with the reality of Jesus. So the message that the angel and Jesus have for the women is a message of comfort, it's a message of conviction, and then finally, and I won't spend as much time on this one, it's a message of commission. I just want to point this out quickly. Look there in verse 7. The angel says to the women, Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And then if you skip down to verse 10, Jesus has the same message for the women. He says, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. Now, the reason why this stands out is because it's actually not until verse 19, later on in the chapter, that we get the Great Commission The famous marching orders that the resurrected Christ gave to his church. You can look down in verse 19 there in the text and we read these words. Jesus says to his disciples before he ascended to his Father in heaven, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. But what we see here in these verses, in verses 1 through 10, is that before the Great Commission is ever given, at the inception of this event, the first time the resurrection of Jesus Christ is announced or declared, immediately we see that this is a message and event to be shared. That this new life cannot be contained, but it must be shared and given away. That this new life that Jesus brings cannot remain idle, but it must spread and affect new life in others. And of course, this message is being shared today all around the world. And it is imparting new life, even today, to sleepy souls who are being awakened by the resurrection power of Jesus. And by God's grace, it may be happening right now to some of you. As this message, this announcement of Jesus' resurrection is granting life in your heart and soul like you've never experienced before. I pray that it is. And my friends, may we be faithful to go and to share this message with others with more and more that they might experience life in Jesus. So two responses. The proper response to the resurrection is fear. And here's the two responses. Either a fear of judgment or a fear of worship. Or fear in worship. And some of you might be thinking this morning, well, well, where do I fit in all of this? I mean, okay, so I see that Matthew's saying that a proper response to the resurrection is fear. But am I to fear judgment? 
or am I to fear in worship? And there's really not any more important question you could ask in your life. And so I want to point one other thing out in our passage just as we close. And I think it will help you answer that question. Notice the main characters in our account. The main characters who are responding to Jesus and to the angel. The main characters are the guards. We know a little bit about the guards. The guards were mighty. The guards were strong. The guards represented the might and the strength of the Roman Empire. And then the other main characters in our text that are responding to Jesus and the angel are the two women. Now that's not particularly noteworthy to us because... Thankfully, we live in a society that rightfully celebrates the equality of men and women. But it was especially noteworthy to, first century, to the first century audience and to the original audience of the Gospel of Matthew because we know from historical accounts that women in the first century were not permitted to testify in a court of law. It was assumed that their testimony could not be trusted. And so this is actually another validation of Matthew's account of the resurrection. If Matthew had just been fabricating this account, coming up with a story to convince us, to persuade us of something that had not happened, he never would have chosen his first witnesses, his star witnesses, to be women. Because in the first century they would have been immediately discredited. But here they are. The first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. Matthew records it this way because that's simply the way it happened. But furthermore, even as we consider these two women, we notice that these are not, even if you were to choose two women, these are not, at least one of them, not the woman that you would particularly choose. One is Mary Magdalene. We know from Luke chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, that she was a woman from whom seven demons had been cast out. She was a misfit. She was a spiritual and cultural leper. She was unclean. And so here we have in Matthew's account, we have two contrasting groups of people. The Roman soldiers, powerful, strong, mighty. And we have these two women, weak, vulnerable, marginalized. And to whom does the angel, to whom does Jesus speak this word of comfort? Who in our text is trembling with fear that judgment's going to fall upon them? And who is rejoicing with wonder and awe at the resurrected Christ? It's the women, right? It's the weak, it's the vulnerable, it's the marginalized, it's the nobodies. And here's the principle. Get this, my friends. The resurrected Jesus decimates the strong. And he gives life and hope to the weak. We can say it this way. Arrogance and pride will die in the presence of Jesus. And weakness and frailty will come to life. And so if you're here this morning and you're weak and you're needy and you're a spiritual klutz 
and you're a sinner and you feel, oh, I've got to be forgiven, there is hope for you. Jesus came for people just like you. One of my prayers this week as I was preparing this message is, Lord, on Sunday, give us weak and broken people. And as you give us weak and broken people, may we come alive in the presence of the resurrected Jesus. I wonder how many of you are in answer to that prayer. If you feel your need for Jesus this morning, trust in him. Give yourself away to him. Be stunned by his glory. There is life and joy in Jesus. He came for you. Let's pray. Father, we are so satisfied with cheap thrills and joys. But we thank you that your word calls us to a far deeper joy and reality that's far better and more satisfying. And God, we even feel it as we read Matthew's account that you have created us for awe and for wonder. And Father, we thank you that in the presence of the resurrected Lord Jesus, that desire is satisfied. Father, I pray that for all of us here this morning who are weak and needy, that we would find life and hope in Jesus. And Lord, I pray that the resurrection power of Jesus that has been saving souls and making people new for centuries would be a reality among us this morning. Hear our prayers, Lord. Meet with us now. Be pleased even as we sing praises to you. And it's through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.